0: This episode is brought to you by Crimped. This is the best app I've seen when it comes to self-coached training for rock climbing. If you are a self-coached climber or you've been climbing for a while, but you're interested in training for the very first time, Crimped was designed to give you a professional training experience right there in your pocket. All of the workouts in the app are crafted by world-class climbers and coaches. Tom Randall, who's been on this podcast a couple times, and his partner, Ollie Tour, who is also a high-level climber and an expert gymnast. He's really awesome at rings and core training and things like that. Both of those guys from Lattice Training. Tom and Ollie make a great team. You're getting professionally crafted workouts workouts in the app for free you can find workouts that are tailored to help you improve your endurance power endurance strength power conditioning mobility finger strength you name it it's in the app with crimped training on your own has never been easier so check out crimped that's c-r-i-m-p-d you can check that out at crimp.com, or you can download the crimped app for free on iOS or Android that's crimped.com or find the crimped app in the app store and get started with your training. This episode is also brought to you by Fizzy Vantage. I've been taking the Fizzy Vantage Supercharged Collagen every day for several months now, and I love knowing that my tendons and my ligaments have all of the building blocks that they need to get stronger. Supercharged Collagen is a research-based athlete-proven supplement that supports collagen synthesis in connective tissues and the force transfer matrix of muscle. What does all that mean? Well. To me, it means, if you want stronger fingers, you should be supplementing with collagen. Some of the FizzyVantage pros call supercharged collagen their finger food, and most of their pro athletes and thousands of their customers swear by supercharged collagen for helping maintain strong and healthy fingers. Boulderer and crusher Drew Ruana, who's been on this podcast, just recently sent his 50th V14. He swears that it even helps him recover his skin after hard sessions on sharp boulder problems. I personally am taking collagen an hour before my finger training to get the most out of my training so I can hopefully one day hang that damn beast maker center edge with one hand. I still have a long way to go, but I'm making progress and I definitely think the extra collagen is helping. If you would like to try out Fizzy Vantage Collagen, head over to fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off your next order. That's fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off your order. And finally, this episode is brought to you by Rhino Skin Solutions. These guys are my go-to when it comes to taking care of my skin. I've been using the Performance Cream to keep my skin dry as it's starting to warm up here in Utah. And I've been using the Repair Cream in the evenings to help my skin heal between sessions on the sport climbing project that I've been trying. Whether you have dry and glassy skin or sweaty skin, and you have trouble keeping chalk on your hands like I do, Rhino Skin Solutions has products that are designed just for you and your skin type. My favorites are the Performance Cream, Dry Cream, and Repair Cream, as I am a sweatier climber. If you want to level up your skin game, head over to rhinoskinsolutions.com and enter code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. That's rhinoskinsolutions.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off and start taking better care of your skin today. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. I've got another Q&A episode for you today. I am recording this in a parking lot in my van outside of the climbing gym here in St. George, Utah, where I've been for the last couple weeks, sport climbing. It's an awesome gym, by the way, Contact Climbing in St. George, if you guys are in the area and want to check out a cool gym. I've been warming up here and then heading out to the crag to go climb for the past couple weeks, and it's been awesome. Uh, But today, it's just me, no guest, and I'm answering questions from patrons who support the podcast. got some really great questions today, and I tried to organize them by category again like I did last time. So feel free to listen through this whole episode or to treat it like a buffet if you would rather just bounce around, pick questions that you're interested in. I put all of the categories and timestamps and the questions in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com and you can find them right there in your podcast app as well if you scroll down through the episode notes. So yeah, these are questions from patrons who are supporting the show. If you want to have your own question featured in a QA, and a you can learn more about Q&As at thenuggetclimbing.com slash QAs, or you can just go to thenuggetclimbing.com, click on episodes and click on Q&As, and you can find the other ones that I've done, learn more about how to support the show and how to have your questions featured on the show. But yeah, so today I've got questions from a bunch of different patrons. The first category is questions about my personal climbing and my training and my goals. The second one's going to be about training and climbing advice. We've got a question about nutrition and body image. Some questions about my background and my time as a root setter, which I haven't talked about much on the show. Uh, Some questions about van life and traveling and lifestyle, and then some questions about me, my personal life, and just fun and other random questions, and then questions about the podcast and my goals for the podcast and things like that. So once again, uh, if you're interested in one of those categories, you can find the timestamps and the categories broken down right there in your podcast app if you scroll down, or you can go over to the show notes at nuggetclimbing.com before we jump into this q and I want to give a quick shout out to Craig Lee. Craig Lee is the latest patron who has signed up to support the show at the $30 per month tier, which is super awesome. Thank you, Craig, for being so generous. $10 of that is going to Sacred Rock to support them. $10 per month is going to Climbing for Change. So Craig's supporting three great organizations in one. And it's a huge help. So thank you again to Craig. And thank you to all you guys who support the show, whether that's financially through Patreon or just by talking about the podcast, sharing it on Instagram. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Many of you already have. And there's some really kind reviews on there. I read them all. And thank you guys. It's been really, really encouraging and and just gets me fired up to get messages from you guys and to get support. So thank you all for listening and for supporting the show. And that's it for housekeeping. Thanks for tuning in today, and I hope you enjoy this Q&A. Cuz All right, so the first category is questions about my personal climbing, my personal training, and my goals. And I've got a couple questions from Vincent. First question, what is your current finger strength routine? Please be specific about grips, durations, frequency, etc. Yeah, so I actually just switched things up a little bit. I'm trying something new and I'm really excited about it. I put out an interview recently with Ned Feely, one of the co-founders of Beastmaker. Ned put out a great training book called Beastmaking. I highly recommend it if you haven't checked it out. But yeah, finger strength is a huge weakness of mine. I think it's the thing, the single thing that holds me back in my climbing more than anything else. And for a while, I've been looking for a way to train my fingers consistently and try to get them stronger over the long term that I can pair with outdoor climbing because I live on the road, I climb outside all year round. And I was looking for a way to hopefully do both at the same time, even if it meant slightly reduced outdoor performance. So that conversation with Ned felt really relevant to me and I've been trying his very simple approach of warming up on the hangboard and then doing three max hangs before going rock climbing. So what I've been doing for the last couple of weeks and what I plan to just continue doing basically until I stop making progress is rotating through three very simple sessions throughout a climbing week and doing one of the sessions per climbing day. So for example, let's say that this week I'm climbing on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. On Monday, I will warm up at the gym or warm up in my van on the hangboard, get the body warm, get the core temperature up a little bit, do some stretching, warm up the fingers gradually over the course of 10 or 15 minutes, doing harder and harder pulls and things like that and then kind of work my way up to pulling harder and harder. And then I'll just do three assisted one arm max hangs on a half crimp grip position on a gigantic edge. It's like 30 millimeters or larger because I can't quite hang that with one hand. So I'll do that large edge in a half crimp with one hand And I'm just doing it at body weight and using my pinky finger on my other hand on a tiny edge, like a 10 millimeter to give me just a little bit of assistance because I can't quite do that at body weight with one arm. So I'll do like three sets of five to 10 seconds with two to three minutes of rest in between each hang. I'll do one arm immediately do the other arm and then take two or three minutes off. And I'm kind of working my way up to being able to do three times 10 seconds and have that feel pretty comfortable before I try to make the intensity harder. But I'm not worrying too much about this very specific load. I'm just doing something that feels really hard each day. And like I talked about with Ned, really trying to focus on the long game and just see what happens over lots of time. So that might be what I do on Monday, just warm up, do those three max hangs and a half crimp, and then go climbing and go sport climbing for the day out in the Utah Hills. And then on Wednesday, similar thing, but I'm hitting a different grip position. So I'll warm up and then I'll do a few hangs in a full crimp position with two hands at body weight. I haven't trained full crimp in quite a while. So my full crimp is pretty weak right now on the hangboard. I'm training on a 20 mil edge at body weight without my thumbs wrapped over. So in a full crimp position, really putting a lot of stress on the palm to keep my hand flexed in that full crimp position without my thumbs wrapped over my index finger. And I'm doing a slightly different protocol. It's kind of the same idea as the max hangs, but I'm doing a protocol that I got from Steve Bechtel, uh, the ladder protocol where I do a three second hang. I rest for the remainder of that minute. So 57 seconds, and then I do a six second hang, rest for the remainder of that minute, and then do a nine second hang, and then rest for the remainder of that minute. Then I do three again, rest, six again, rest, nine again. There's nothing magic about that protocol. I could do max hangs and it would probably accomplish the same thing. But I've been using that protocol for full crimps for quite a long time now because I really like how the short hang kind of warms you up for the longer hang, which warms you up for the even longer hang. And then you just cycle through that a couple times. Um, I find that that has just worked really well for me for full crimps. I'm trying to keep the intensity sub-maximal so I'm not going to near failure on that nine second hang. I'm trying to keep a two or three second buffer in there. And then once that whole cycle feels just easy, then I will make the hold a little bit smaller I'll probably stick with body weight and just make the hold smaller and just repeat the process. So that's what I would do on day two in this example on the Wednesday. Again, warm up, do the hangs, then go climbing. And then on Friday, I'm doing the max hangs again, but I'm doing three finger drag position on a big edge with a little bit of assistance. So same exact thing I described with the half crimp protocol, but I'm doing it with the three finger drag. So to summarize that, I'm doing three finger strength training sessions a week. Each session is incredibly short. The whole thing takes like 10 to 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, including the warm up. I do just a few really hard hangs. The total time under tension is anywhere from like 15 to 35 seconds. And I just do one grip position and then that's it for that day. So within a week, I'm hitting on three different grip positions, one session each. And then there's basically a full week of rest between the same exact session. And so far, so good. I really like it because I am making small improvements every session so far. I'm not using weights or pulleys or anything because I want to let there be subtle variation in my sessions. Like if I'm feeling tired that day, I don't wanna overthink it. I just wanna do what feels appropriate that day, maybe use slightly more assistance with my other hand and not stress about the numbers, and just stick with this over the long term. It doesn't seem to be taking away from my climbing performance. I can feel the difference a little bit, but it's negligible. And it feels really sustainable. And those three grip positions feel like they cover all of my bases. So, yeah, again, I just started doing this approach a couple of weeks ago, I plan to stick with it for at least 10 sessions of each of these things. And then, if I hit a wall and I stop making progress, what I plan to do is keep the grip position the same and maybe just change the protocol a little bit, or maybe I'll switch to a half cramp using a tension block and pick something heavy up off the ground. I'll do something that's similar, but slightly different just to change things up and hopefully kickstart progress again. And I just wanna stick with something simple like this over the course of the next year and be really consistent with it and see what happens. So yeah, hopefully that is helpful, Vincent, and best of luck with your finger training. Okay, second question from Vincent, what does your current training cycle look like? Also, please comment about days, sessions, goals for the session and about the rest days and resting between cycles? Yeah, that's a big question. We could probably do like a two-hour podcast just on all the nitty-gritty details here. But to give you a sense of my year, I live on the road, I climb outdoor on rock all year round. So most of the time, I'm not really in a training cycle. And how I'm thinking about structuring my year, how I have been for the last couple of years, is to have a block of quote, training in the summer. Last summer, I trained for six weeks in a gym, mostly on the spray wall, and did some supplemental training, and then went to Rocky Mountain and bouldered for a couple months. And then I'm also doing a block in the winter, which is just bouldering in Waco. And those kind of are my training blocks. And then the rest of the year, I'm just doing a little bit of supplemental something just to maintain strength. And then I just go rock climbing, whether that's sport climbing, whether that's bouldering in Leavenworth and switching up the styles. I'm not thinking too hard about how I structure the spring and the fall. I just go climb a lot and pick routes that are challenging and that are fun and that I'm inspired by and things like that. So yeah, I'm not really in a training cycle right now. Uh, The bulk of my year as a climber, I'm climbing on rock three to four days a week. Right now I'm doing those three really short hangboard sessions per week like I just talked about. And right now, at least I'm doing basically nothing else. Um, My body feels good. I'm hiking a lot to the crag every day. And I feel like I'm pretty covered. If I had a glaring weakness, then I would probably work on that in the weight gym or on rings or something like that. But my antagonist muscles and my shoulders and things are generally pretty strong because I've done a lot of weightlifting in the past. I was doing some supplemental training in Waco like two evenings a week after climbing, just doing some shoulder presses or decline pushups and some scapular strength and things like that. And that's, that's kind of a good base for me. And I don't really do much else the rest of the year. I think I'll have one training block in the summer where I might do some weightlifting and kind of do more of like a base strength phase. And I don't know what that's gonna look like yet but I'll definitely do an episode with Steve Mesh about that and cover all the details when that time comes. So I know I didn't totally answer your question, Vincent, but the takeaway is that I spend most of my time just climbing, supplementing with a little bit of finger strength training and some other strength training if I need it just to maintain strength that I've gained. And then, yeah, these days, even my training cycles are mostly centered around outdoor climbing, just trying to get the most out of bouldering in Waco or bouldering in the park, things like that. Hopefully that is helpful. Okay, next question is from Constantinos. Would you be up for a season in Europe? If yes, would you mix blocks and roots? What are your European dream sends? Yeah, I would absolutely be up for a season in Europe. I don't have any plans to do that right now. I'm really enjoying climbing in the States and there's tons of good climbing to do here. And in general, I really prefer to go deep into a style or an area and really get to know it versus traveling tons and seeing tons of new places all the time. So I don't feel a burning need to travel overseas to climb right now, but I would love to go in the future and... I'd probably do either a bouldering trip or a route trip. I probably wouldn't try to combine too many things in the same trip. For that same reason, I really prefer to focus in on something. Um, I'd love to do a trip to Fontainebleau. That's a dream area for me. So that would be a bouldering trip, obviously. I would love to go to Seuse. That seems like the best crag in the world. And that would just be climbing routes and getting used to the style and just probably showing up and seeing which lines inspire me. And then I'd also love to check out Catalonia, obviously, at some point. That seems like the epicenter of hard sport climbing, and sport climbing is my favorite style of climbing. And as far as dream sends, I don't know. I don't have any that really stand out, honestly, at this point in time. That's the sort of thing where once I have a trip on the books, I'll start geeking out, doing my homework and getting really psyched about a specific area or specific climbs I want to do. But in general, I kind of like to just show up and see what inspires me. I think that's a really fun way to go about a trip is just show up without a ton of information, start exploring around and, and yeah, just see what looks really cool and what gets me psyched. Okay, this question is from Daniel. If you could send the next grade by sacrificing something in your life that is pleasurable and time consuming, what would it be? And would you do it? That's interesting. I think most climbers do that all the time. You know, anytime you're trying to send, generally, if you're working really hard for a climb, we as climbers, we tend to kind of strip our lives down and get rid of some of the more fun, more playful, more relaxed things and really focus in on what we're doing. So that might be cutting out alcohol when you're in performance mode and trying to send a project. I know a lot of people who do that and I don't drink much anyway, but I'll definitely kind of go into monk mode if I'm getting close to doing a hard climb. That might be Tightening up your diet a little bit, eating whole foods that are really good for you that are gonna help you recover and having fewer treats and desserts and things. I mean, I think we do this all the time. So yes, I would definitely sacrifice something in my life that's pleasurable uh, and time-consuming. I probably just veg out less when I'm really psyched on a climb and trying to perform at my best, just feel more focused. So rather than choosing to sit and watch a movie, I might go on a long walk and be thinking about the beta and thinking about the sensations and visualizing what it's going to feel like to make the link that I haven't made or what it's going to feel like to get through the crux from the ground or things like that. So, so yeah, I think I would just kind of pass on some of the simple pleasures for a period of time to really focus in, go into monk mode and that discipline and focus can feel really empowering. I think that can be really good provided that you remember that it's a balance and I don't think it's sustainable to try to be in that mode all the time. So having a mix is really good. Okay, I've got a couple of questions from Christoph. You alluded to seeing the fix and follow system in action on Moonlight Buttress. Did you try to free Moonlight? How did it go? Are you going back if you didn't send? Yeah, it's cool that you picked up on that. I did a trip to Zion in... The early spring of 2020, very shortly after launching the podcast, I was out there with my friend Lizzie Van Patten, mostly supporting her. She was trying to free the climb and I was just kind of along to support and try it myself and just just see how much progress I could make in the limited time uh, that we had and kind of plant the seed for the future. I knew I probably wasn't ready to send it. I didn't send it, by the way. At the time, I haven't spent a lot of time doing splitter sandstone crack climbing like that. So those upper crux pitches, the 0.5 pitches felt really hard to me. But yeah, it was a really cool experience. We climbed on the route probably four different days. We wrapped in from the top a few different days and worked on the hardest sections of the route. And then we went ground up one day just to see how high we could go. And between the two of us, we freed most of the pitches. We didn't free the two hardest pitches. And I freed a fair amount of it. I led one of the five twelve pitches and red pointed that on one of the days that we lowered in from the top. But um, I think we were both pretty far away from sending and I think I would definitely have to do a season in Indian Creek or just spend more time on the route to really dial in that splitter crack climbing style to have a good shot at doing it free. So I would love to go back. It's an amazing route, it's beautiful, it's super inspiring, uh, but it doesn't feel like a high priority right now because I'm more psyched on bouldering and sport climbing, but I would love to go back and do that one of these days. Okay, Christoph also asks, you mentioned in a comment to me that you're heading to Yosemite sometime this year. What's on the agenda? Would be stoked to hear about the process involved in freeing some longer routes if that's your plan. Yeah, I do plan to go to Yosemite. I don't think it's my plan to try to free some longer routes, but I'm not totally opposed to that. I'm actually planning to do a bouldering trip to Yosemite in October and November. I've actually never been to the valley, which is starting to feel almost blasphemous doing this podcast and having all these awesome conversations about Yosemite history and all this rad stuff that people are doing out there. But I'm honestly not that drawn to the long granite routes. That's never been my favorite thing. I would like to do some of it in the future. But yeah, when I think about free climbing on El Cap, for instance, that's something I'd like to do someday. But the thought of that doesn't really get me psyched. It just sounds like a huge pain in the ass. It sounds gnarly. It's definitely not my favorite type of climbing. And it's not my favorite type of challenge. I really like hard movement and dissecting hard movement and learning and executing moves that felt impossible when you first tried them. I really love that process, either on boulders or on sport climbs. Whereas doing a long granite route, I don't know, not so much my thing, at least for now. But I do have some plans to at least experience some of the longer stuff, maybe not free climbing, but maybe just trying to climb something big in a day, that's TBD. So I will keep you guys posted about that and how it goes. Okay, this question is from Matt. What are your top three go-to climbing shoes and why? Also, what climbing shoes would you love to try but don't have the time and or commitment to invest in? So yeah, I am a La Sportiva guy through and through. I started wearing them in probably 2010, And they just fit my feet really, really well. I love them and I don't think I have any reason to switch. So I'm really psyched on Sportiva. My top three shoes are probably the solution, which is interesting. I actually didn't like that shoe at all at first and it's really grown on me and now it's probably my favorite shoe. So that's probably my number one. I use that for almost everything, at least lately. When I lived in Oregon and climbed at Smith Rock a lot, I really liked the Otaki. I think that's my favorite vertical, technical, standing on your feet with more weight on your feet, like a stiffer shoe, I think that's my go-to. I also really like the Mira Velcro and the Katana Lace. I use the Katana Lace for hard, techie trad climbing. Um, But I think the Otaki is my favorite tech shoe. It's really comfortable for me and fits my foot really well. And I've done, all my hardest roots at this point in that shoe. So yeah, that's probably my number two. My third favorite, again, probably either the Mira Velcro or the Katana Lace. I really like both of those. They're similar to the Otaki, but they kind of have different strengths. Those are both kind of in my quiver. And then one shoe that I've been wanting to try for quite a while, and I actually just ordered my first pair, is the La Sportiva Theory. I've been wanting kind of a softer cave shoe with more toe hooking rubber and I've heard awesome things about that shoe. I'm really excited to try it out. So I actually have a pair waiting for me at my folks house back in Washington and I'll be trying it out in Leavenworth this season. So I'll let you know what I think of that one after I try it. This question is from Andre. What grade do you honestly feel like is your absolute limit in bouldering? Yeah, that's a cool question. I think at this moment in time, I think I can climb V12. I'm pretty confident that I can if I find the right ones and put enough time into them. I think I'm definitely capable of leveling up to at least V13, but I don't think I'm there right now. I think I'm capable. I think I will get there. I think I have a path to get there. Yeah, V13, I think, is possible for me in the next... I don't know, two years, three years, something like that. I'm hoping to do that. And then I honestly don't know what my absolute limit is. Like maybe I could climb a V14 if I found the perfect one. I've never tried something that hard. I don't know. Again, I think finger strength is my biggest limitation. And I'm really excited about this Ned Feely approach that I'm trying out. I'm excited to stick with that with a lot of consistency over the next few years and see what happens with my fingers. So if I make a big jump from that, then who knows? I might have a lot more potential to climb harder boulders than I realize. But yeah, right now I think V13 is definitely possible. Beyond that, really not sure. This is also from Andre. Do you miss some of the body strength exercises you used to do a lot like pistols, deadlifts, etc.? Yeah, that's a good question. And for people listening for more context, when I lived in Bend and climbed at Smith a lot, there was a few years where I did a lot of deadlift. I did a lot of bench, I did a lot of pistol squats, weighted pull-ups. I got really strong at weighted pull-ups at one point and I could do one arm pull-ups. The deadlifting, I think, really helped my steep climbing and keeping tension on a steep wall. But no, I don't think I missed that right now. I don't think those strengths are the things that are holding me back or keeping me from my goals. I think I have a pretty good base of that, but I do think I will return to some of those things in the future. And maybe that'll be like setting aside two months per year where I kind of re-up on my strength base, my foundation, do some deadlifting, do some weighted pull-ups and some bench press or things like that for a couple months a year. I think I'm going to do something like that this summer because I haven't done that in quite a while. And I'm curious to see if I can break some new ground in those strength areas now that I'm kind of settled at a higher body weight with more muscle mass than I was when I was doing more of that before. So all that to say, I think they're really useful exercises. I don't think I'll ever go back to doing as much of that stuff as I did during that period when I was really into it. I think spending more time climbing really steep stuff has given me a lot of the same strengths that I struggled with when I lived at Smith Rock. And it's a lot more relevant to climbing because I'm actually getting that strength from climbing movement. So I think they help. I think if you have a body strength weakness that you can address through weightlifting, you should definitely consider doing that, it takes very little investment to make really big gains in those areas. In my experience, it's a lot easier to get body strength than it is to get finger strength, for instance, in my opinion. So something to think about if you feel like your posterior chain or your ability to do a pistol squat and like press up onto a foot on a slab or things like that are your weaknesses. I think doing a little bit in the gym to supplement and help those areas out could make a big difference in your climbing. And the good thing is it doesn't take very much at all. Like you could have one session a week where you do like two sets of five of that exercise and probably make really good gains if you stick with that over a few months or two times a week, go heavy on one day and then go lighter on the other day on the same exercise and you can get really good gains. Okay, this question is from Xander. How have these podcasts shaped the way you climb and train? It would be interesting to hear you reflect in depth on your habits pre-podcast versus right now. That is an excellent question, and it's a tough question to answer because my lifestyle changed tremendously when I started the podcast. I moved into a van left my home and my job in Bend and hit the road. And I've been on the road full time for two and a half years. So that has done way more to shape the way that I climb and train than the podcast. But of course the two are very intertwined. So as far as the way I climb and my climbing habits, one thing that's been really cool and kind of empowering is that I think I was doing a lot of things right. Before I started the podcast and having all these conversations with people, I think I've always been very tactical and strategic in my climbing, and that's a strength of mine. I think a lot about how to get the most out of my physical abilities. And yeah, I think I was doing a lot of things right as far as that goes. I've definitely made some changes and picked up a lot of little tips and tricks and things. Um, Ethan Pringle helped me with my breathing. I've been climbing with Joe Kinder the last couple of weeks and it's been really helpful to just watch how he approaches a really steep sport climbing project and to try to mirror some of his habits. Just the little things that you pick up over time from climbing with really good people and observing them. But again, no major differences there. I think I was doing a pretty good job with my approach to projecting and climbing skills and things like that. One thing that's changed a lot and been super helpful is that now that I can travel, I spend way more time climbing steep stuff. I had about seven years where I was climbing at Smith mostly and there's really not much steep terrain there. And for the past two years, I've been climbing in Waco and in Rocky Mountain and in Rifle and here in St. George where there's a lot of steep caves. And just all that time spent in steep overhanging terrain has done more to help me improve as a climber and improve my weaknesses as a climber than maybe any other thing I've ever done, any training I've ever done. Just putting in the time on the thing that was really hard for me has been tremendously helpful. And I, I really think that getting good at steep climbing, the strengths that you get from that seem to transfer back up to less steep climbing really well. Maybe that's only because I've I have a big base of climbing at Smith, and I have that skill set as well. But yeah, it's been really helpful for me to get those skills. And I think it's been really helpful for me to build strength just through climbing on steep terrain a lot. I kind of feel like I've reinvented myself as a climber in the last two years from doing that. And it's just been awesome. So that's brought a huge shift. And then again, going back to Ned Feely in our conversation and finger strength training, for quite a while I've been asking this question of is it possible to get my fingers way stronger while also climbing outside a lot? And I think I have at least a strategy that I'm really excited to try over the next couple of years with this really simple approach from Ned. And that's really different from how I used to train. I used to train in a much more training block kind of oriented way where I'd train in the summer train in the winter and then try to perform in the shoulder seasons. And I'm pretty psyched about like a much longer view, simple but really consistent approach, mixing in a few max hangs a few times a week with a lot of outdoor climbing i'm really curious to see what happens with that over the next couple of years all right we're on to the next category which is training and climbing advice this is another question from constantinos what would be your golden climbing nugget towards newer climbers who get obsessed with quantifiable training methods spend the minimum on actual climbing and the maximum on training specific elements mostly needed on grades they dream of climbing? That's an excellent question, Konstantinos, and I'm glad you asked it. My number one golden climbing nugget towards newer climbers, regardless of how obsessed you are, regardless of what your dream grades are or your goals or your dream climbs, is just to prioritize climbing, to spend as much time as you can working on practicing climbing and growing the skills of climbing. That can be in the gym, that should be on rock as much as you possibly can. I think most people are limited in the amount of time they can get outside, but spend a lot of time climbing. You can train, you can do different bouldering workouts and things that you hear about on the show that you think are gonna help you get stronger. That's fine, but I would say for the first several years of your climbing at least, The vast majority, and I'm talking like 90% of your, quote, training should be climbing based. So your climbing shoes should be on. You should be on the wall or on the rock. If you want to get stronger, do more bouldering. But do that instead of spending time on the campus board or on the rings or things like that. If you wanna get good endurance, spend time climbing roots or doing long circuits or traversing on the wall and working on climbing really well and working on relaxing and working on breathing and working on keeping your arms straight and being as efficient as possible and working on your movement economy and things like that instead of jumping on the campus board with your feet on and doing ladders. You know, most of your time should be climbing. Um, I have yet to meet a climber who climbs really hard who hasn't put the time in to climbing and growing the skills of climbing. So yeah, that would be my number one is spend the vast majority of your time with your climbing shoes on and building skills. Get out on the rock, climb on different types of rock, go on different trips to different areas, get psyched, see what inspires you and things like that. If you are obsessed and really have big dreams and really wanna see how much you can level up, then By all means, do some general strength training that's going to help build your body up and give you a better foundation. But try to do the bare minimum that's going to give you some progress without overdoing it and just do it over the long haul. Again, the training should be very supplemental. It should be the 10% or less of the total time you have. If you only have a couple hours a week, spend all of it climbing. If you have 15 hours a week, maybe you can spend a couple hours doing some supplemental training, but spend most of your time climbing. If you feel worn out, take it easy, just do skills work, climb slabs. If you feel really good, try hard, but make sure you warm up, make sure you do some volume every single climbing day and do a circuit of climbs or boulders to get yourself ready to try hard instead of just throwing yourself at something really difficult that you couldn't quite do last session, for instance. So yeah, hopefully some of that helps. Uh, Number one thing is enjoy it. Remember why you started climbing and got hooked in the first place and have fun. And you're gonna be able to keep doing it for a really long time and do things that you never imagined you could do. Okay, this question is from Brianna. How do you fit in all of the different types of training that seem necessary without getting too fatigued? I struggle with this in just trying to fit in everything I want to do over the course of a week. Strength, power, volume, antagonist, and core training, mobility. Not even in pushing too hard in a single session. Yeah, this is an excellent question. I'm really glad you asked it and something that's so easy to screw up. It took me a long time to understand how to fit all this stuff together. So I'm glad that you asked this. The short answer is, don't try to fit everything into a single week. That's a lot of stuff to fit into a week. I never try to fit in that many different things in the course of a week. So instead of doing that and stressing about that, what I would suggest is pick the one or maybe two of those things that feel like the biggest priority for you right now and just double down on those, triple down on those, focus on those two things. Maybe it's strength and core training. Focus on that for the next three months until you stop making progress or you feel like you just need a break or you just feel bored and you want to do something different and then switch it up. You can focus on antagonistic and power for the next couple months, or you can focus on mobility and volume for a month. Don't feel like you have to stay totally on top of all of these things all the time. I think that's a really common trap because all of these things feel really important. But the key here and the really good news is that you will maintain so much of what you gain in the course of like a two or three month cycle of focusing on something just by continuing to climb. So if you build your strength up and you build your core training up, you don't have to keep limit bouldering and deadlifting and hangboarding and things like that every single week forever to maintain that stuff. You can maintain it with surprisingly little climbing or training while you focus on other things. So think of it as like these different pillars that you're building up that support this bigger picture of your climbing performance. You kind of build one and then you can switch and focus to another. And when you go back to the first one later on, that base that you've built is still going to be there. It's not just going to go away. You might feel like you lost a little bit when you go back for the first week or two, but you'll be able to build it up a lot quicker the second time around and even quicker than that. The third time around And you can kind of have these three or four or five different pillars, whether that's strength is one, power is another, your capacity and your volume is another, your general strength and antagonistic muscles and things is another one. You have all these different things you can kind of build up and each one supports one another. You can kind of focus on one and then shift to something else and trust that you're going to maintain a lot of those gains and you're going to be able to build more on it later on in time. So... Yeah, for you specifically, I'd recommend taking that list of things that you're hitting each week and pick two of them that feel really important to you and really focus on those for the next couple months and see what happens. And then the final thing I'll say to you, Brianna, is that if you have... One area that feels especially tricky for you, like maybe it's, it feels difficult for you to gain finger strength or body strength or mobility. Maybe you have tight hips or who knows what it is. But if there's one thing that feels like kind of a critical thing for you personally, then that would be the thing that you try to maintain all the time. Maybe you focus in on it for a couple months and then when you switch to another area of focus, you keep one short session a week of that thing to try to like keep it ticking over so you don't let your progress backslide, things like that. And then you can keep building that cycle on cycle over time. So yeah, I hope that helps. We could have a much longer discussion about that. Feel free to reach out to me if I didn't answer your question fully and best of luck with your training. All right, this question is from Neil. Neil writes, in your interview with Verm, that's John Sherman for people listening, he mentioned curing his chronic elbow tendinitis by primarily training his shoulders. However, he avoided getting into the details of the exercises. Do you have any insights into this? Um, I do not. I do not know the specifics. I did ask Verm who his trainer was once again after I saw this question. And his guy is Ryan Whitehead at Paragon Athletics. I believe he is in Flagstaff, Arizona. So you could look him up. I think Verm credited Ryan for really helping him out. He also had a PT named Jason Dorsch, D-O-R-S-C-H, who helped him with his initial post-op physical therapy. And then Ryan took over from there. So you could reach out to one or both of those guys if this issue feels especially relevant to you. The one thing I'll say from my own personal experience is that, man, everything is totally connected. The elbows, the shoulders, the neck, the wrists, the fingers, like all of that stuff exists in a chain. And it seems like a really common theme that I hear all the time where an injury that is presenting at a certain location, whether that's a chronic elbow issue or a wrist pain or a finger thing, um, I've heard so many stories of people fixing that stuff or helping that stuff by working on a different area where they had tightness or compression against a nerve or things like that. So. For me, I struggled with carpal tunnel for a really long time and couldn't figure out what it was. I thought it was just inflammation in my carpal tunnel area. I went to see an ART specialist, that's active release technique. And I actually did a podcast about this, episode five with Mark DeJohn. He was my guy. And he just looked at me and was like, dude, you have the tightest forearms I've ever seen. And you're injured. We just need to loosen up your forearms. So loosening up my forearms helped my carpal tunnel immensely, but we only got so far, it kind of got to like a sticking point. And I noticed that I had a lot of tightness in my shoulder and my neck as well, especially on my left side where my carpal tunnel was worse. So we started working more on my shoulder and my neck in addition to my forearms. And within like a couple sessions of doing that, I went from maybe like 60% improvement to 100% improvement. I no longer have this issue at all. So that's just a story to kind of keep in mind. If you have an issue, it's definitely worth seeing a professional, whether that's a massage therapist or ART or whoever, find a practitioner who you trust and who you kind of resonate with and see what they say. You might be able to address a long-term chronic issue by addressing something else in the chain that you haven't realized is actually a problem. So hopefully that helps, Neil. All right, next category is nutrition and body image. And I just have a couple questions here from Sava. Sava writes, if you experience this, how do you deal with bad body image? Yeah, man, I definitely experienced that. It was really quite a trip to go through my own journey with some disordered eating and body dysmorphia that came out of that. I had never dealt with that in the past. I'd never really cared about how I looked. And then I got really skinny and really lean. And then my body kind of broke down and I regained weight. And there was a couple of years there where I had a really hard time with body dysmorphia and body image. And I still have the occasional Bad body image day where I see a photo of me that's taken from a bad angle, or maybe I had some extra salty food and I just look kind of puffy in the mirror or things like that. It happens all the time. Um, I think the number one thing that has helped me is to really focus on climbing. Um, It's interesting, the same sort of mindset that led me down the rabbit hole of disordered eating also helped me break free of it because ultimately I just wanna climb better. I just wanna get stronger and climb my dream routes. And I tried getting really skinny to climb harder. It worked for a little while and then it totally backfired and it ended up being a huge setback in my climbing. I got really weak. I got some injuries when I was recovering from that. And I think I lost like two or three years of time that I could have been improving if I'd been on a better path. And I feel like I'm on a better path now. I can feel my body getting stronger. I'm feeling lighter and lighter on the rock as my strength improves. And I feel really robust. I have more body weight. I have a little bit of, quote, extra body fat. You know, I'm not in peak kind of performance mode, you know, looking like a professional climber on their best day on Instagram, but it's working. I'm fine with that because I'm really happy with how I'm climbing and I feel really robust and injury proof right now. And I'm getting progress. I'm seeing progress season on season. And it's clearly a much more positive trajectory than I was on before. So focusing on that is the number one thing that helps. I care more about my climbing than how I look. And Then there's days where I'm like, damn, I look great. I'm like muscular and I look fit and I look really strong and that's really cool. So I think it's really common and really natural to have ups and downs with this stuff. And I think a lot of people experience it. Another thing that really helps and this might sound kind of weird. I don't know if this is a good way or a healthy way to deal with this, but I don't know, it helps me. One thing I keep in mind is like, Sometimes I feel like I should be lighter, I'm a little too heavy for my build or for my height or whatever, but then I'm like, you know what? Training weight. I'm just imagining that I'm doing all this hard climbing and training with like a small weight vest on carrying a little bit of extra weight and I'm just going to get super duper strong from training that way for years and years. So I wanna err on the side of having the training weight and getting stronger instead of accidentally not fueling enough and not getting the gains that I could be getting from my training. Having that framework in my mind has actually been really helpful. Um, So that's maybe something to try on. Again, I don't know if that's a good recommendation or the healthiest mindset, but yeah, I don't know. It works for me. but. Again, this stuff is really tough. You're definitely not alone if you are someone who struggles with bad body image. Um, But I I think things are headed in the right direction. Another thing that's helped a lot is to watch some of the videos that have come out about this stuff, watching the film Light. That was a really beautiful film. I'll link to that in the show notes. And then also just finding climbers who have really powerful, strong, muscular builds and drawing inspiration from how strong they are on the rock. Like Matt Foltz has been someone for me. I look at him and I see how hard he's climbing on some of the smallest holds in the world. And I'm like, damn, yeah, there's no reason why I can't get a lot stronger with this body type as well. So that's been really empowering for me is to seek out those people that have a similar build as me who are climbing at a really high level and draw inspiration from them. This is another question from Saba. How do you decide how to eat and rest without getting obsessive or distressed or spending a fortune? Yeah, that is a really interesting question. I don't totally know how to answer it, but I'll just share the thoughts that are coming to my mind. I've spent a lot of time kind of dialing in my nutrition and finding what works best for me. I think that's a really personal journey. I kind of follow a mostly paleo approach and I get some extra carbohydrates from white rice because I think I do better with that than other grains as far as like digestion and things like that. I have a skin issue. I have psoriasis and that seems to get flared up when I eat grains and gluten. So I stick with white rice, but yeah, it took a long time to figure that out. And I don't think it's the best way for everybody necessarily, but The one thing I will say is that now that I know what works for me and I know how I like to eat, I'm willing to spend a lot of money on really high quality food because I think it's really important. So I don't spend much money on alcohol. I don't spend much money on going out to eat. I don't spend much money on other luxury items that I don't really need. Um, I am willing to spend a good chunk of my income on really high quality food because I feel like it's really important to me. So that just comes down to priorities. And I think it's definitely possible to eat a really healthy diet without breaking the bank. So it's just getting a little creative. You know, maybe you can't buy all the organic produce right now. Um, The Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15, I think, is a really good resource to kind of check in on and see like which fruits and vegetables should I try to make sure I purchase organic versus which ones might not matter quite as much as far as the pesticides and the quality of the food and things. I'll share a link to that reference in the show notes. But yeah, those are some of the things I think about with food. And again, it's a really personal journey. So I wish you the best of luck and thanks for the question. I hope that helps. All right, next category is my personal background and root setting. I've got a few questions from my pal, Justin Wise. Justin writes, what was the largest distance away from the WW Rec Center that you ever found tape on your shoe? That's hilarious. So Justin and I went to school together at Western Washington University. We worked together as root setters at the climbing gym at the Rec Center. And this is before everything was set with same color holds. So we taped everything. And yeah, I probably got, I'm sure I got all the way across campus with tape on my shoe a couple times and probably got all the way home before I realized that I had a piece of pink tape that I was tromping around through red square. But that's really funny to think back on. I'm really glad that we've moved away from taping everything in commercial climbing gyms. seems like a big improvement to not have to deal with the tape. What is the biggest positive change you've seen in commercial climbing gyms from when you started climbing compared to today? What about the biggest negative change? Man, good questions. Um, I honestly didn't have a good perspective of commercial climbing gyms when I first started climbing. I started climbing at the Western Washington University Rec Center gym, which was an old entrepre gym. Justin obviously knows this. This is for everybody else listening. But yeah, that gym was designed to look really cool for people that came into the Rec Center and were considering spending thousands of dollars a year on tuition to go to that college. It was not designed for people that wanted to get better at climbing. So that was my early experience with indoor climbing. I never really went to big commercial gyms until much later in my climbing. So I didn't really know what was going on in the indoor scene. Uh, The biggest improvement I think is just Climbing gyms understand that there's a lot of people out there that just want to improve and they're doing a better and better job of balancing, providing a really fun experience for people that just want to go have a good time with providing really good training opportunities for people that think of themselves as athletes that want to get better at the sport. So whether that's having a weight gym in the climbing gym and having kettlebells and squat racks and deadlift bars and things like that, having boards, having a grasshopper board, a moon board, a tension board, a kilter board, a spray wall, all that sort of stuff is a huge improvement and just provides a much more diverse training opportunity and and climbing experience for lots of different types of clients. So I think that's probably the biggest positive. And then the biggest negative change, I don't know. I can't really think of anything. I guess maybe just the fact that it's become more commercial. You lose some of the intimacy that you have when things are smaller and it's more of like a mom and pop shop sort of feel and you know everybody. But that's not a bad thing. It just changes things. You know, some things feel a little bit more formal. Maybe you have to do more stringent belay tests and sign longer waivers and things like that. But that's just part of the game, you know liability, these companies have to cover themselves. And I think it's overall a really positive thing that there's so many more people getting into the sport. Okay, final question from Justin. Do you feel that WW shaped your climbing experience for the better? How do you think modern collegiate climbing experiences compare to yours for better or worse? and then in parentheses, how wild is it to think a decade has passed? Yeah, man, that's crazy. I can't believe that we graduated from college a decade ago. That really blows my mind. Um, so the first question, how did WW shape my climbing experience for the better? Well, again, for people listening, we did not have steep walls. It was all technical, 10 degrees overhanging, kind of at most. It was a uh, Imprint walls, so they had a lot of contours. We couldn't fit very big holds on the wall. A lot of our holds were old, resin, slippery holds without much texture, tiny crimps, things like that. So I think all of that was really good for a base of technique in that style. I think climbing at WW got me really good at being precise with my footwork and working on balance and staying over my feet and kind of dancing, looking really pretty on the wall, moving slow and controlled and fluid and static and things like that, because that was the climbing style there. So I think it helped me a lot with this style of climbing that I ended up doing a lot of at Smith Rock, but what it didn't do, and this will answer part two of your question, is it didn't teach me how to climb physically hard stuff on steep terrain. That's something that has taken me years to catch up on because I never had that base of climbing on a steep board. We never got to do that. So I think I'd be in a very different place as a climber if I'd spent a lot of time on like a 40 degree wall or a 60 degree wall when I was a newer climber. And I'm guessing that a lot of modern collegiate gyms have more of that sort of stuff, whether that's having boards or just having more steep terrain So I think that would have helped me out a lot, but oh well, it is what it is. And I'm just trying to make up for lost time now, which is why I'm spending all of my winters in Waco tanks. Anyway, thanks for the questions, Justin. Really fun to reminisce about all that stuff and hope to climb with you again one of these days. That'd be awesome. Okay, the next few questions are from Will. Will writes... I can't recall if you've mentioned this in previous episodes, but did you have a favorite setting style as a root setter in college? I don't think I have talked about that, but expanding on what I just talked about with Justin, we didn't have that many options. As I said, most of our terrain was not very steep and it was really featured. So the biggest hold you could put on the wall was probably like five inches in diameter uh, for the most part, maybe a couple exceptions, but. I've never set with a volume. I've never set with a giant hold or a bunch of giant holds. It was all like little crimping and pimping sort of techie style stuff. So that was my favorite, I guess, because that was kind of the only thing that we could do. Um, But I did really like slow strength style, like really tensiony movement, really directional holds where you have to keep a lot of body tension and move really slow or else you just barn door off the wall. That was always my favorite because that's what I was good at. And yeah, I think that'd be my answer. I loved setting with side pulls and gas stones and things like that instead of down pulling holds. I thought that was really fun and I still enjoy that style of climbing. Another question from Will. Did you set at a bouldering wall or a rope climbing wall? So yeah, the wall at Western Washington University was a mix of both. We had a pretty small area. We had a little bouldering kind of stair-stepped cave. It wasn't really much of a cave. It just kind of had like inverse stair-step feature. So vertical, then horizontal, then vertical. We were able to set some slightly steep and powerful stuff there. And then the main part of the wall had top ropes and lead climbs up to about 35 feet, maybe 40 feet, not very tall. And we would set the whole bottom of that part of the wall as boulder problems up to like the 15 foot mark or something like that with a big piece of tape across that part of the wall. So it was always kind of a mix. I really preferred to set boulder problems because the roped climbing didn't really feel worth it. It's kind of that awkward length where, yeah, it just doesn't really even feel worth it to tie into a rope. Um, and it's just so much more work to get up on a rope and set a rope climb. It just felt kind of lame to do that for like a, a 40 foot tall route. But of course I had to do some of that and I did enjoy it, but I definitely preferred bouldering. And oh, I just read the rest of your message. Will, Will writes, I also worked as a route setter in college, favorite job I've ever had and loved setting crimpy technical routes and problems. So yeah, same here, man. Uh, Super fun to set that kind of style. I really enjoy it. And I love that job as well. I had a really fun time doing that. I probably worked 15 hours a week at that job because I was in school full-time and that's the perfect amount of time, in my opinion, to work as a root setter. I'm totally blown away by people that do that as a full-time job. I think that'd be such a difficult and demanding job. So yeah, that was a really fun experience. And... Hat tip to you guys out there who are setting roots full time and making it your living. Okay, the next category is questions about van life, traveling, and my current lifestyle. These two questions are from Sava again. How do you plan your climbing trips? Yeah, so the short answer is I basically just follow the climbing weather around the states, but of course there's always more than one option in any given season. So I've been kind of traveling for the last two and a half years and dialing in my circuit of favorite places that I like to go at certain times of the year. That's been really, really fun to do that. And at this point, I kind of have two fixtures in my year. I really love spending the winters in Waco. I've done that twice now. I plan to do that for many winters to come possibly indefinitely. I really love it there. And it's been really helpful for my climbing to spend a couple months there in the winter. So that's a fixture in my year. And then I feel the same way about Rocky Mountain. I loved my time there last summer and I'm planning to go back. So then it's just a matter of filling in the time around there. There's several places that I love to climb, but I'm not too structured with it. I kind of have an idea of where I wanna go over the next six months or so but I really like to keep things somewhat loose and just see what my motivation and inspiration does and see what feels exciting and and what sounds really fun and kind of listen to that as well. So with the spring and the fall, I'm not too concerned about like what makes the most sense for improving at climbing or what's gonna be the sickest thing I can do. It's just, no, what sounds fun? I have some time to just go enjoy climbing and maybe that'll be... A really specific goal. I want to take all that training from Waco and go try to climb a really hard sport route. Or maybe it's just, no, I just want to have fun and go do a bunch of pitches and enjoy climbing or go check out a new bouldering area. So again, I kind of have the fixture in the winter and the summer. And then the shoulder seasons are just kind of planning around the weather and what sounds fun and what makes the most sense. Um, I I am spending more and more time back in Washington these days because my family's there and that's been really fun to climb in Leavenworth again, a place that I absolutely love and that gives me a chance to catch up with family and hang out with them. So that's an area I'm spending more time in the spring and the fall these days. Other than that, it's pretty go with the flow. I have ideas for where I want to go, but it's not totally locked in. I leave myself open to see what opportunities come along. As far as the planning, I really like to just show up. Um, I think that's really fun, just show up and just kind of figure things out once I'm there. I'm not a big planner. I don't really like to figure out where I'm going to stay or figure out all the logistics. I really Some people find that really fun. I personally don't. I prefer to just go and get there and figure it all out once I'm there and figure out the climbing and see what looks inspiring and kind of build my trip around what I find when I get there. Another question from Sava, what's the biggest expense regarding van life? I mean, the biggest expenses in my life right now are gas and food. Food's probably number one. Getting high quality food is a priority for me. So I'm willing to spend a good chunk of money on that. I really get a lot of value out of that in my life. And then gas, yeah, gas prices are just brutal right now. So that'd probably be the number two. And then otherwise, life's pretty cheap. It's pretty doable. Um, I spend money on gym memberships every once in a while. I'm in St. George right now. I bought a month membership to the gym here, which has been really nice for taking showers and for working there on work days and for doing some training there and for warming up on climbing days. I'll often do that in the gym. So that's an expense. Climbing gear, getting new shoes from time to time, things like that, just the normal stuff. But yeah, the biggest ones are definitely gas, food, and then, of course, if you have a car payment, that's something to consider, insurance, things along those lines. But basically, it's the same as normal life, just without paying rent. That's pretty much what it's like. These questions are from Ainsley. After traveling around so much, do you find regional differences in climbing culture? What are some of the most important and strangest similarities or differences you've observed? Any big lessons you've taken away from other perspectives on climbing? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I haven't traveled much overseas for climbing specifically. I think that's where you probably see really big changes in cultural differences and approaches to climbing. But even traveling around the States, climbing in different areas, switching between bouldering and sport climbing. Yeah, you definitely see cultural differences. I think one of the things that's really interesting to observe is how standards are really different in different areas. And I think it's just really shown me that the weight and the importance that we put on grades and different climbing levels, it really affects how we perform and what we think we're capable of. And that's really shaped by our community and the people we're around so if you climb in an area where there aren't that many 513s and climbing 512 is a really big deal, it's going to be a lot harder to break into 513 if you live there than if you live in Colorado and climb at rifle all the time and everyone climbs 513 and 514. You know, that culture and that belief that you have in yourself and that idea, those ideas of what's possible are very, very different in those different places. And I think that can really shape people's climbing. So that's something to keep in mind for better or for worse. Um, Some areas have a much more fun, laid back, climb for the enjoyment of it approach. Other areas have a much more performance, we're gonna send, we're gonna do hard stuff approach. Yeah, every place is pretty different. But again, I think the main takeaway for me is that the people around you and the culture around you definitely have a very powerful impact on your perspective and how you see yourself and how you see climbing. And be aware of that because that can be a really powerful asset if you leverage it correctly and find the right people to surround yourself with. Okay, I've got another question from Brianna. Is it difficult to find climbing partners while living on the road? Any tips for finding partners for roped climbing? Yeah, that's a good question. It hasn't been too difficult for me because I've been doing it for so long. I find that I almost always know people at any given area where I want to go climbing. So it's usually pretty easy for me to connect with a friend or an acquaintance or a friend of a friend and get teamed up with partners. Um, A lot of the times if I'm going on a sport climbing trip, I will coordinate with friends and try to make sure that I'm gonna have some friends who are there or I'll ask them if they wanna go on a trip and things like that. Um, But it also just really depends on the area. You know, like if you were to roll up to 10 sleep and you're alone in your van or your car solo trip, you're not gonna have any trouble finding partners to climb with, just go to the rock ranch and meet people. Um, Whereas, you know, a more remote area, if you're climbing here in St. George, it might be really tricky. There's a lot of different crags. There's a lot of people who are more focused on their own climbs they wanna do. They have more of a mission. It's a smaller community. So that can be uh, a little bit more difficult. I think that one thing that really helps is to go to the local climbing gym if there is one and connect with people that way. But climbing is awesome. The community is awesome. And I find that I'm always shocked at how small it is and how often I run into the same people in place after place after place that I go climbing. So I think it feels kind of scary at first, but once you get out there on the road and you start connecting with people, it gets really easy to build on that, build your network and your community on top of that and make more and more connections. Okay, this question is from Phil. Did you have ideas other than the podcast to make good use of your non-climbing time whilst living in a van. After four years of van life, I have this problem, or luxury." Yeah, Phil, I can totally relate to that because the first time I lived on the road, this is years ago in my Subaru, I had just finished college and finished an internship and had some money saved up. And I thought that traveling and living on the road and climbing full-time was just my absolute dream life. I thought it was gonna be glorious, just nothing but fun. And I did that for about six months. And by the end of it, I felt really burnt out. I felt really purposeless. I was having a hard time staying busy on rest days. I just felt restless. I was climbing too much and I just felt like worn out and beat up and it didn't feel sustainable. Whereas this time around having a creative outlet, having the podcast to put energy into and having something that feels really meaningful, it's been such a positive compliment to my climbing. So maybe the thing to ask yourself is what you enjoy spending your time doing, and then see if there's any creative ideas or outlets that you can explore from that. For example, I never considered doing a podcast or even imagined that's something I would enjoy, but I spent all my time listening to podcasts. So it was kind of right there in front of me, but it took me a long time to see it. And maybe for you, there's some kind of a clue there. So if you find yourself spending a lot of time reading, maybe it'd be really fun to try writing. Try writing a book. Try writing short stories or something and see if you enjoy that. If you spend a lot of time watching climbing films, maybe it'd be fun to try to get into filmmaking and try making your first film. Just try it with your iPhone and... See if you enjoy the process. Same thing with photography. Same thing with cooking. If you're really into going out to eat and exploring different cuisines and flavors, maybe you love cooking and meal prep and you've never tried that before. I think finding some sort of creative outlet that isn't physically demanding is awesome. It's an awesome adjunct to climbing and Maybe this chapter of your life is just an opportunity to try lots of different things and see what clicks. Okay, this question is from Skylar. Where do you like climbing in the summer? Sport, trad, or bouldering? Yeah, I have two answers. Rocky Mountain National Park. I spent two months there last year in August and September. That was amazing. I loved it. I felt like it made me stronger and better at climbing, and I'm definitely planning on going back. And I have some projects up in the Alpine, some bouldering projects that I'm really excited to try this year. And then Ten Sleep, I think, is my other favorite. That's sport climbing. It's so much fun. I had a great time there two summers ago. I don't know when I'm going back this year, but I'm definitely planning to go back. It's just such a blast. It feels like summer camp. The weather is perfect. Really comfortable kind of vacation climbing vibes. There's plenty of routes to do. You can pick easy routes and do volume. You can pick hard routes and project. It's just a great time. So definitely planning to go back there at some point this summer as well. This question's from Joe. What are some of your go-to dinners when cooking in the van or at a campground? Context, I'm not picky at all. I also have an Astro with a very small fridge and limited space for storage. Yeah, good question. I'm super routine. I eat the same thing all the time. I'll just like get psyched on a specific meal and I'll just make that over and over. I really like to do stir fries. That's definitely a go-to. I like to do things that I can make in one pan and I'll cook some meat. More often than not, it's ground beef. Maybe I'll cook some mushrooms, cook some veggies, slice up an avocado. Uh, Maybe I'll cook some rice. I like to cook big batches of rice. So I cook like a couple cups of rice and I'll put it in a big Tupperware. I'll pull out some rice that's already cooked, mix all that together in a big delicious bowl and have that for dinner. That's an example of a go-to that's super tasty. Spices go a really long way with something like that. If you have a few different cuisine sort of oriented spices, you know, have something that's like smoky and spicy, maybe have something that's more like garlic, have something that's more curry based you know, just having a few different options like that can really change the experience of a meal with very little effort. So you can cook all the same ingredients, change the spices, and all of a sudden it's totally delicious and, and different than last time. So, yeah, that's probably my go-to It's just a big old stir fry. This question is from Liam. I'm curious about your internet access in your van for working on the podcast. Is it a cell phone hotspot? Yes, it is. I have Verizon. I have an unlimited plan that got grandfathered in, which I am very grateful for. And yeah, for my remote interviews, I do a lot of interviews on Zoom. That usually does the trick. If I have good cell phone reception, I will just use my phone as a hotspot. One thing that made a huge positive difference for me was getting a cord to tether my phone to my laptop. So I have a cord that is USB-C to lightning, and I'll plug my iPhone into my MacBook Pro so that the hotspot is hardwired to the phone. That improves the speed tremendously. So that works really well for Zoom calls, for simple stuff like emails and things. Um, And then generally, I need like one day a week where I have really good Wi-Fi to upload the episode for the week, to upload all of my audio files and my Logic Pro files and back everything up on my Google Drive to upload photos, stuff like that. So I'll have one day a week where I go to a coffee shop or the climbing gym or a friend's house or something like that and use Wi-Fi and kind of catch up on all my internet needs. Usually that's on Sunday before my... Episode comes out on Monday morning and then the rest of the time, yeah, the hotspot seems to do the trick. It's, it's working really well so far. I have definitely thought about getting an antenna of some kind on my van, basically a cell phone reception booster or something along those lines. I haven't done that yet, but I'm looking into that and I'll let you know if I do that and if it helps. All right, next category is personal questions and fun and random questions. And this question is from my friend Casey. Casey writes, if you could have been a pro athlete in any other sport when you were young, would you have been a gymnast, a diver, a hip hop backup dancer, ballet dancer, bobsledder, synchronized swimmer, or other? (laughs) Wow, uh, tremendous choices to choose from. Thank you, Casey. I have to say, gymnast is the thing that really pops out at the top of the list there because it seems like it'd give me such a great foundation for climbing. Um, But also, gymnasts are so badass. I think when they do that shit on the rings and do the iron crosses and stuff, it's just like. So impressive and so cool. And they have like the best physiques of any athletes, in my opinion, except for maybe climbers. So, yeah, gymnast is probably at the top of the list, followed closely by hip hop dancer. You said backup dancer, but you know, I mean, I'd be shooting for the front of the stage, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, hip hop dancer would be probably my number two. And that's still on my bucket list. I'd really love to take a hip hop dance. Class at some point in my life because I think that's just super cool. Okay, these questions are from Andre. Top two climbing places outside of the US you would like to go and why? You know, I was just talking about this with Joe Kinder yesterday because I've been climbing with him out here in Utah. And we were talking specifically about sport climbing, so I'll just go with that. I love bouldering as well and would love to do a trip to Fontainebleau, Magic Wood, Rocklands there's a bunch of places but for sport climbing I think Saus is probably my number 1 right now. It's just got so much history. It might be the best crag on the planet and I just have to go climbing there one of these days. It looks incredible. And then number 2 is probably Rodar in Catalonia. There's so many zones around that area. I'm sure I'd check out a bunch of them if I was over there, but that one just looks Absolutely breathtaking and magnificent. And then I'll throw in a bonus one. This is number three. I'd love to go to Flatanger. I think that landscape is just absolutely stunning. The rock looks super cool. I love climbing on granite and I've never really done any super good granite sport climbing. I think that'd be really fun to try. So yeah, that place is really high up on my list as well. This is also from Andre. Who's the freakiest climber you've ever seen perform live and how was it? Freakiest is an interesting word. I'm assuming you're meaning like freak strong, like who was the craziest to watch as far as how good they were or how strong they were. And in that case, I have two answers for you. Uh, The first one I have to mention is Adam Ondra. I got to meet him at Smith Rock, and I was back there at the monkey face the day that he onsighted Just Do It. I got to watch that in person. It was the most inspiring and the coolest thing I've ever witnessed in person in my life. It was just so exciting. And so awesome that he actually pulled it off. It was freezing back there that day. He was climbing in the shade. It was super windy. The rock was cold. I was just amazed that he decided to go for it and he freaking onsighted the thing. It was so cool. I've never heard a human make noises like that out of just sheer desperate effort at the top of the route. There's a video of it. I'll link to that in the show notes for you guys that haven't seen. It's funny, you can actually see me for a split second in the video. But yeah, that was just absolutely incredible. I don't think anything else I've seen live in climbing compares to that. Uh, But then the second answer, and right up there as well, is Drew Ruana. I've seen him climb at Smith over the years a number of times and just do things that completely blew my mind. But then it was really climbing with him in Bishop for a couple days back in 2020. This is shortly after I launched the podcast. I went down to Bishop And Drew was there and I came up and watched him try a V14 and it just blew my mind to watch him close up, climb on this thing. It was terrible conditions. The sun was going down and the sun was shining right into this cave. So it was basically the worst time of day to be trying this thing. He figured out all the beta in about 15 minutes and Nearly sent it. He peeled off and fell on the last move, unfortunately, and peeled the big flapper. I think he's gone back and sent that thing now, but it just blew my mind to watch him climb it and then be able to walk up and look at the holds that he was climbing on and feel them for myself and just really see what he was capable of doing. In my brain, watching him climb on it, it felt like I was watching a really good climber cruise a V7. And then I went up and looked at the holds and they're just like slopy pockets in a horizontal roof and it's a V14, he was just making it look easy. So yeah, I don't know if I've ever had my mind blown uh, by just someone's physical ability like I did that day. That was pretty cool to see. I've also watched Drew campus V12 in the climbing gym on holds that I just didn't think would be possible to campus on like compression slopers in a roof without using his feet, Just totally blew my mind. I've got a few more questions from Sava. Sava sent me a bunch of good questions this time around. The first one is, how does your family feel about climbing? Yeah, I like this question. I think all my family members think climbing's cool and impressive, but none of them are that into it. Um, My sisters have both tried climbing and dabbled in it. My brother-in-law's done some of it as well but I would say I'm the only climber in my family. But what's really cool is that the podcast has definitely changed the way my family feels about climbing, I think, at least to some extent. I think it's really shown them how big of a community it is and just some of the cool things that people are out there doing and I kind of feel like it's validated this weird obsession that I have in a way with this funny thing that they don't totally understand. So that's been kind of fun. My parents listen to the podcast, so they understand climbing a lot better than they did a couple of years ago. And that's been really neat. It's kind of helped me relate to them and be able to share climbing with them a little bit more than I used to be able to, which is really fun. Okay, the next question, ideally, what do you want to try slash learn slash experience slash send next year? Yeah, that's a cool question. I've definitely got some specific climbing goals right now. They are definitely number related. Um, I've been working on my bouldering pyramids with Steve Meisch. And I'm getting really close to finishing my V12 pyramid. So that feels like the next big goal for me is to try to climb a V12 this year. And it's not just the number, I've got specific boulders that I feel really inspired by. So there's one back in Leavenworth that I'm excited to try in about a month. It's called the Tornado Arete. I've never tried it before, but it looks like it might suit me pretty well for that grade. So excited to go back and try that. And then there's two in Rocky Mountain that I tried last year, one called Wildcat and another one that's a lower start to a V11 that I did last summer. It's called Veritas Low Left, and it just adds a really hard move or really hard couple moves into the V11 that I did. So I tried that a little bit last year. I could almost do those intro moves, and I feel like with a little shoulder strengthening and specific targeted prep for that boulder, I might be able to do that one. So yeah, that's at the top of my list. And then... I'm trying a 514 right now. I haven't put serious effort into a 514 in quite a few years now. And I've been climbing with Joe Kinder out here in Utah, supporting him on his project and trying a route that he put up a couple of years ago called Joe Exotic. It's probably a hard 514A, something like that. We don't know for sure. And that's been awesome. I don't think I'm going to send it this season. I'd be surprised if I did but it feels really good to plant the seed and kind of know what I need to work on to hopefully do that next time around, whether that's in the fall or next spring coming off of my next Waco trip. I'm not really sure yet, but 514 is a really big goal for the next year as well. And then beyond that, I'm really excited to just enjoy the process along the way and learn as much as I can from each climbing area and each hard climb and just keep kind of rolling forward with this momentum that I feel like I have right now. It feels really, really fun to be kind of moving forward with bouldering and steep climbing in particular. And I'm really excited to keep focusing on that because I kind of feel like I'm on the cusp of a big breakthrough for myself personally and feel like I'm really close to breaking into uncharted territory as far as a new climbing ability level and breaking through some old plateaus and things like that. So that feels really exciting. Okay, another question from Sava. What's the last book you enjoyed or found important? I really enjoy audiobooks. I like to try to listen to a book when I go on a long drive. I like reading as well, but I find I have less and less time for it these days. But yeah, I listened to a great book on my drive from Waco to St. George this year, which was 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. I'll be sure to put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, the audiobook was incredible. He reads it himself. The subtitle of the book is Time Management for Mortals. And I really love the book because it's not your typical productivity book. It's not about how to get more out of your day or to answer your emails faster or things like that. Uh, what the book really does a great job of is putting the time span of our life kind of in a bigger context of the world and the cosmos and just making our lives feel really short and really precious. And I found it gave me a really profound sense of peace, just listening to that and thinking about that. And I've kind of been carrying that idea with me over the past few weeks. It's kind of stuck with me. And I've been applying that to the work that I do with the podcast, just thinking about What do I spend time doing that's really important, that's really serving me and you guys and my guests versus what are the things that I stress about that don't really matter that much and trying to let go of those and let go of the control of those and feeling like I have to stay on top of them. So, yeah, check that one out if it sounds interesting and I hope you enjoy. Okay. I've got a couple more questions from Vincent. As your fame grows, how do you see yourself changing as my fame grows? Yeah. That's a really interesting thing to think about. I don't feel any different. I don't feel like my fame is growing. Um, I definitely get recognized pretty often at the crags and people have heard of the nugget, which is really cool, but I don't think that makes me feel any different or, or makes me feel like I'm changing it all because um, I just feel really lucky to have stumbled into this venture and to be the person that gets to ask the questions and share these amazing stories with you guys. That just feels like a really fortunate and fun position to be in. And I'm definitely aware that I'm the same person that I was before. I'm the same rock climber that I was before. I'm not magically better because I have a bigger platform now. I still have big goals, I still wanna improve. All that has stayed the same. So I'm I'm under no illusions of being a pro now or anything like that. Um, So in that way, I I still feel the same and I'm just out there trying to do the best I can and trying to improve. Um, But I think having the podcast and doing work that feels really meaningful has actually given me a pretty deep sense of fulfillment and, I think I have more confidence from doing this than I ever have before. I think I feel like I have a really strong foundation of support from you guys and from community. And that's a really powerful feeling. And I feel that feeding back into my climbing and my connections with people, my relationships, feel more confident meeting people that I might've been intimidated by in the past and Yeah, it's pretty neat. I feel like I'm opening up a lot through my time doing this, which is really neat. What things that you didn't think about when you started this venture have become important for you? I think sharing people's stories has become really important to me. Uh, When I started this, I was more interested in mentorship and learning as much as I could from each person, but I've become a lot more interested in just hearing about who someone is and why they are that way and sharing the very human parts of these amazing climbers that we all look up to, because I just think that's really powerful. I think we lose a lot of that in today's digital age where we see little snippets of people on Instagram and things like that, or in the climbing films. And just hearing someone's story, hearing that someone that you look up to is a human and struggles with a lot of the same things that you and I do, I think that's a really positive thing, a really powerful and empowering thing. So yeah, capturing and sharing people's stories feels really important to me these days. And that's really exciting because that means there's a lot more podcast episodes to do in the future because there's so many unique stories to share. Vincent also writes, are there any things that were very important to you when you started, such as training and climbing outdoors, that have changed in priority? Yeah, I think climbing outdoors has become more of a priority. Training has become less of a priority. But again, as I talked about earlier in this q and I think a lot of that has more to do with my lifestyle change and moving into the van and traveling full time than it necessarily has to do with the podcast it just makes more sense. I'm finally on the road. I get to travel and go where the weather's good and climb outside. So I want to take advantage of that while I can. And then training, once again, I still want to find a way to do a little bit of it so I get better over time and do some of it that supports my outdoor climbing without taking away too much from my outdoor climbing. So that's kind of been the the mission lately. And it's what I'm most excited about right now with my current training and hangboarding approach. And if you skip to this part of this Q&A, you can go back to the very first question to hear more about that. Okay, these questions are from Daniel. Are you thinking of settling down anytime soon or is your van life going to last a while longer? Yeah, I think van life is gonna last a while longer. I've been in the van full time for almost three years now and on the road for coming up on two and a half years. And I'm not sick of it yet. I really love it. I'm really enjoying it. And I've been kind of thinking about where I would want to buy a house or settle down. And there's no clear answer for me right now. So basically, when I go back to Washington, I get really excited about Washington. And when I go to Colorado, I get really excited about Colorado. And when I'm in St. George, I get really excited about St. George. So what that tells me is I think I'm doing the right thing. I think it feels like the right fit right now to be on the road and be exploring all these different areas. Um, But I, I would like to settle down at some point. I think my next step is to buy a house somewhere that I would love to live and maybe have kind of a hybrid lifestyle where I live there and work there and climb there for six months out of the year, maybe three months in the spring and fall, and then travel in the summer and winter, something like that. Um, but no plans for that at this time. That's probably at least a year or two away. Not really sure. We'll see. Daniel also writes, it seems trendy to get married and have kids in the climbing world. Are you dating right now? Do you want kids? Um, man, yeah, it does seem like a trend right now, doesn't it? Everyone seems to be having kids. But no, not me right now. I'm currently single, not dating anybody and no kids on the way. Knock on wood. And yeah, I think I talked about this in the last Q&A, but still haven't totally figured out what I want dating to look like living in the van. It's kind of tricky. You know, I think at this point in my life, I would prefer to kind of Take my time getting to know someone and build a friendship with them and then move into a relationship if that feels right. And it's hard to do that living in a van when I stay somewhere for two months and then I leave and on to the next spot. So, yeah, I haven't really figured out what I want that to look like. There's obviously other ways to date. I could go out and date people for fun and think about it in the shorter term or Some friends of mine have done short-term dating where they just date someone for a month or two while they're in an area. But yeah, I don't think that's for me as much. Both of those options feel like a lot of work to me when I think about them and I'm generally pretty content doing my thing. So I think for now I'm just doing my thing. We'll see where it goes this question is from Darren. What are you grateful for? And why did you stop asking that question? I liked that one and I'm ready for it to be brought back. And then Hunter commented on that as well and said, yes, bring this question back. Yeah, that's cool to hear. I'm glad that you guys like that question. I do like it as well. Um, I think it just was starting to feel a little bit formulaic to me to end every conversation with that question. And I want to make sure that with this podcast, I keep things fresh and I keep things interesting. And I think that question was just feeling a little bit stagnant to me. I was less excited to ask it. So, so yeah, I'll probably bring it back at some point, but it probably won't be every single episode. And I think I want to find some different questions that kind of get to the same idea. So like different forms of asking the same thing. I think it'd be kind of interesting and fun to mix it up a little bit. And then what am I grateful for? I feel really grateful for my community right now. It's been really nice to be back here in St. George. I have some friends here and Waco was a really great recharge. That's where I was prior to being up here in St. George, but a lot of alone time. It was a lot of like solo kind of recharge time and getting a lot of work done and just having fun and hanging out with friends when I was out climbing. But a lot of my rest days and work time was just solo. Whereas here, I'm just around more friends every day. And that's been a really nice change. It's been really cool to connect with some old friends and also reconnect with some acquaintances that I've spent a little bit of time with in the past. And just, I'm getting to know a couple new people uh, this season a lot more deeply and hanging out with them really consistently, which is super fun. I've really enjoyed my climbing days with Joe. We've just been getting after it like three days a week, just banging away at our hard projects. And yeah, that's been awesome. That guy inspires me. It's been really fun to get to know him more on a personal level, um, just a human level and hang out with him and his dog. And it's been a while since I've sport climbed and it's been really fun to have that just consistent experience getting out to the cliff with a climbing partner and kind of tap back into that again. It's been really fun to do that. Okay, final category. These are questions about the podcast and my own podcasting goals. These first questions are from Taylor. How did you choose the theme song for The Nugget? It doesn't seem well known. I think I found it on YouTube, but not on Spotify. The Nugget might be a jump-off point for that band. I hope it never changes. Well, that's awesome. I'm glad you like it. And the name of the theme song on the Nugget is called Like We Do It, and it's by an artist named Grace Mesa. And no, you're not going to find it on Spotify. Um, I actually found that song on a royalty-free site and bought the license for it. I think the one I used was called Premium Beats, premiumbeats.com if you want to go browse around on there. But yeah, that's a website where you can browse music that you can purchase the license to for commercial use. Use it in ads or in podcasts or in videos or things like that. So I probably spent a week just exploring tons of different music and trying different ones out, slowly kind of whittling it down until I had like a top three that I really liked and this one just kind of got stuck in my head and never got annoying to me I really just thought it was catchy and fun and had a positive kind of feel and energy to it and I loved it it just kind of felt right so I listened to it just ad nauseum for like a week straight to make sure I didn't get sick of it and start hating it and I still liked it so decided to make it the theme song and here we are Okay. Another question from Taylor. What podcasts does a podcaster listen to? Non-climbing podcasts are preferred. Yeah. I've covered this in other episodes, but that's fine. I'll just cover it again and I'll share links in the show notes so you can check these out. But my favorites and my go-tos, I'm actually pulling up Apple podcasts right now. Um, One of my latest favorites is called Smartless. It's kind of stupid it's just really funny it's three comedians interviewing one of their friends or a famous scientist or actor or comedian or something on the show they just kind of shoot the shit for an hour it's really just fun lighthearted. i never really learn anything um and i like that it's really helpful for me to listen to things that are just fun and to turn my brain off sometimes so That's been a favorite lately. I usually listen to that in the morning when I'm making coffee and breakfast and just kind of easing into my day. So that's been a favorite one. Uh, The Tim Ferriss Show is a longtime favorite of mine. I've listened to hundreds of episodes of Tim's show and his show really has transformed my life. Um, A lot of the guests that I've been introduced to through his show have become life-changing mentors of mine, you know, through reading their books or reading their blogs or listening to their podcasts or things like that. Um, His show definitely led me to my own podcast and what I'm doing now and completely changing my lifestyle. So his show is still a favorite. Making Sense with Sam Harris is one that I listen to from time to time whenever I want to dive into something deeply philosophical. That's very interesting. Everything is Alive is one of the most fun and creative podcasts I've ever listened to. Just really, really creative premise, and they do a great job. Uh, the Midnight Miracle is one I listened to lately and really enjoyed. I think there's just one season, and I think you have to purchase it on Luminary, maybe, or something. But yeah, you can find it wherever there are podcasts to check out the teaser and I think you can listen to the first episode for free. But yeah, that's Dave Chappelle and Most Def and Talib Kweli sitting around chatting and it's just kind of an interesting mix of discussion and music and comedy. It's a really unique listening experience and I really enjoyed that a lot. So yeah, Taylor, there are quite a few to choose from. I also love Armchair Expert. That one's only available on Spotify now. And I go through periods of time where I listen to a lot of that show and I really enjoy that one as well. So there you go. There's quite a few to get you started. Another question from Ainsley. When you say I'll link to that in the show notes, are you just leaving yourself a reminder to do it when you listen back? was this conscious when you started? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I actually just stole that subconsciously from Tim Ferriss because he'll often say that. And I don't know, I guess I just thought like I probably should say that um, whenever I mention something. I put a lot of work into the show notes and I want to make those a really valuable resource for people. And part of it's a business decision. I want to drive traffic to the website because at some point in the future, I wanna sell cool things on the website. I wanna make really cool merch that you guys will love and that I will love and that will just be really cool and support the podcast. And I want people to be used to going to the website to find just more cool stuff. I'd like to build a blog on there at some point and pay past guests from the show to write really good articles about their own climbing experiences. So yeah. Part of it's just a business decision to get people used to going to thenuggetclimbing.com and seeing what else is there. Cause I think that will pay dividends in the future. And it's also just a way for you guys to get more out of the podcast is to go check the show notes. If you have questions about stuff, I don't have to explain everything in the episodes. I can just link references there and you guys can do a deep dive if you're interested. So that's kind of how I think about that. But I try to say it less these days than I used to, because it was getting a little bit annoying, I think. And I apologize for early listeners to the podcast for that. Okay, this question is from Daniel. Have you ever had to postpone an interview because of your mood or mental health or tiredness? Are there any interviews that you think you should have postponed? Yeah, I actually really like this question, Daniel, and I think there's a couple parts of it that I want to explore. So I'll answer it, and then I have additional thoughts. Um, But yeah, have I postponed an interview because of my mood or mental health or tiredness? I can only think of once that I postponed because of tiredness, and it was because I had mixed up the dates. I think it was Tim Emmett, actually. I was back in Waco this year. Somehow I had gotten our dates mixed up and I realized at like 9 p.m. that I was supposed to interview him the next morning. And I wasn't fully prepared yet. I hadn't finished kind of refining my notes. And also I think I was hoping to climb the following day and then we had a bunch of bad weather coming in the day after that. So yeah, shot him a text. He was super accommodating. He was willing to bump it to the following day and that was awesome. So I guess I've I've probably postponed a couple times for climbing plans um, rather than for mood or mental health. And are there any interviews that I think I should have postponed? I hope not. I mean, I hope you guys don't feel like that either. I think I've done my best with all of them, but that's another thing that I want to talk about with this question is that I think it's really important if you're doing creative work of any kind to know that you're not gonna totally nail it every single time. You know, I'm sure I haven't totally nailed every single one of these interviews. I'm sure there are interviews that I could have done better, but I think it's really important to just show up and do your best and do the work and do that consistently over time. Because if you let yourself focus too much on you could have done better or if you focus too much on your mood or your mental state not feeling perfect before doing something like an interview you'll never do it like i don't think any of us feel totally ready ever for anything you know you just have to show up and do your best so yeah i mean i think it's really cool that mental health is being talked about a lot more and of course If someone needs to take a day off or postpone something to take care of themselves, then they absolutely should do that. But I think one of the best things I've done for myself to make myself a better interview and to grow this podcast to what it's become today is just to give myself accountability. I know that I'm not always gonna feel 100% going into an interview, but I decided when I started that I was going to put out an episode every Monday. And now I have that accountability. And it's like a performance. It's like a show, like a music show. Like the show must go on, you know? So it is really good for me because it lights a fire under my ass to do what I can to try to make sure that I'm in a good mood, that I'm well rested, that I feel like I'm in a good mental space because. I got a good night's sleep the night before because I did my homework and I was prepared for the interview. And then all you can do is show up and do your best. And you know, for me, these episodes aren't about me anyway. So if I'm not having a perfect day, maybe it doesn't matter because it's not really about me. Like maybe I'm not having a perfect day, but my guest is having a great day and they're going to be a great interview guest that day. So. Yeah, I guess my point with this goes back to that kind of famous quote that perfect is the enemy of the good. I think it's really easy to get wrapped up in seeking perfection. But if you're a content creator or an artist of any kind and you're putting out work into the world, you have to let go. You have to let go of perfection because if you hold on to that and try to grasp perfection, You'll never do anything. You'll never put anything out into the world. There has to be a point where good enough is good enough and you just do your best and you put it out there and then you get feedback and you learn from that and you do a little bit better next time. And I think that repetition and that process of shipping things and putting them out there and then being judged and getting feedback and learning is so much more valuable than sitting around waiting for the moment to be right. So yeah, I go back to creating that accountability for myself. I think that's been really valuable. And I also think we're bad judges of our own work sometimes. You know, like there are episodes that I've put out that I was really beating myself up over. I thought I could have done a lot better job or I just came out of the interview being like, damn it, I botched that or I should have done this. I should have asked this or we talked too long about this thing or whatever it is. You can always find things to criticize, but then... Almost every time that happens, I get feedback from people that say like, hey, that was your best episode yet. That was my favorite episode that you've done. And it always surprises me, but it happens over and over. And what I think is going to resonate with people sometimes doesn't. And some of the questions or parts of interviews that I think I could have done better, people really resonate with and they really needed to hear. So... Yeah. All that to say, if I could go back in time, I don't think I would do anything differently because it's all part of the learning process. And that's super important. Okay. This question is from Christoph. I know Tim Ferriss is an influence on how you've approached this podcast. What do you like best and try to emulate about how he approaches podcasting? What do you like least and try to avoid? I think what I like best about Tim's approach and what I try to emulate is his preparation. He always does his homework for his guests. He knows what to ask them about. He knows what's going to be most interesting to talk about with that specific guest, And he's able to get a ton of really valuable information and great stories and things from each person because of that. So I've definitely tried to emulate that in my own approach. That's the number one for sure. And then what do I like the least or try to avoid? I don't know if I have any criticisms. I think he does a really good job with this show. But one thing that I think I'm trying to do a little bit differently from Tim is he talks to a lot of really busy, high profile people, and he doesn't always have an opportunity to get to know them beforehand. And sometimes his interviews are very formal because of that. And I think that's just inevitable. It's just what it is because he's talking to some like busy CEO or something of a big company. But for me, what I love about doing a podcast in climbing is that climbers are super approachable, even pros, even like heroes of mine that seem larger than life, these figures who I've read books about or seen films about, that all of us have seen films about, climbing's still pretty small and it's really approachable and these people aren't like big famous superstars in the larger like global sense. So that's really fun because it allows me to get to know them a lot of times and make things more personal. So that's something I try to do a little bit different from Tim is to, become friends with my guests whenever I can to get to know them a little bit before we do an episode, maybe even go climbing with them, spend the day hanging out with them. And that just kind of gives the interview and the conversation a different feel, a different level of connection and intimacy that I think is really cool. And I really enjoy it. And I think it comes through. I just think it makes for a different and more interesting listening experience. So... Yeah, that's the one thing that comes to mind. Again, it's not a criticism of Tim at all. It's just something I feel really lucky to be able to do with my own podcast. Okay, this is a question from Linda. Does the finished podcast that we hear follow the actual order and flow of the interview in real life? Do you edit mainly for sound quality or do you sometimes have to reorder sections to suit the way you want the story to unfold? This is a great question and I'm really glad you asked it. So, I do edit the podcast and it takes quite a bit of time, but I'm not editing the content very much. So yes, what you guys hear with the finished podcast is very much the flow of the interview that I experienced in real life. And what I'm doing is I'm going through the whole conversation and just trying to pull out distractions. So I let my guests know that they can feel free to pause and think if they wanna think before answering a question. So I might go through and tighten up some of those pauses and breaks just to keep the conversation moving. Sometimes, especially on Zoom, me and the guest will accidentally talk over each other. Either I ask too long of a question and they start answering it before I'm done, or we start talking at the same time or things like that. I'll often go in and kind of clean that up so it's easy to understand. I'll just cut one person's audio or something like that just to make it really clear. I'll get rid of background sound. A lot of it's cleaning up sound quality and making it sound good regardless of where you're listening. I want to make it sound good in the car if you're listening while you're in traffic or in earbuds or just on your phone. And then occasionally I'll cut out a section of the interview if I feel like it doesn't add value to the episode or the conversation or the story. So maybe that's a question that I asked that didn't really go anywhere, or maybe I ask a question and we just kind of rehash something we've already talked about. I might just cut a chunk of that out. I don't do that very often though. Most of the time what you guys are hearing feels exactly like the conversation that I got to have with the guest. And I'm just pulling out the little things that you don't really notice if you're having the conversation with someone, but they sound distracting when you're listening to a recorded podcast episode. Okay, I've got a few last questions. These are from Hunter. Hunter writes, I find you to be an incredibly relatable and genuine podcast host. It seems like you bring out real conversations that go deeper than climbing. Do people recognize you at the crags? Do you have to keep up a different persona or image while at the crags? Well, thank you for the kind words. First off, uh, do people recognize me at the crags? Yeah, they do. That's happening more and more, and it's funny. It's it's really fun, but I also really get a kick out of it when people just say hi and say that they listen to the show or they love the show or things like that. It's It's really fun, and usually when that happens, we become really fast friends. So if you see me out there, say hi. If I have a serious look on my face, I'm probably just focused on a climb, If I mean mug you, it's probably just because I'm having a bad climbing day or something. But I promise you, if you say hi, I'll spring to life and I'll be excited to get to know you. So I'm very approachable when I'm out there at the crag. Do I have to keep up a different persona or image while at the crags? I don't think so. I mean, I think who you guys hear on the podcast is pretty much how I am all the time. It's really hard to hide who you are if you do like 200 hours of podcast interviews. So yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I'm probably not always, I'm certainly not always as like friendly and outgoing and asking as many questions in person as I do on the podcast. You know, we all have good days and bad days. And sometimes I'm just trying to focus on my own climbing or whatever. Sometimes we have a bad day, but I think I'm still me. I'm almost always really psyched to strike up a conversation with people that I meet and get to know you guys when I run into you at the crags and ask you about you and your lives and stuff. So yeah, again, please say hi if you see me out there. But yeah, the one additional thing I'll say is that the podcast has actually given me like a cool sense of accountability because I'm a little bit more aware of my actions when I'm at the crag and it hasn't changed anything major, but I want to have a good attitude when I'm out there and not just be negative about a climb that I'm struggling on if I'm having a a rough day. And I want to be approachable. I want to ask people that I meet interesting questions and be curious about who they are. So having the podcast out there and knowing that random people that I meet at the crag might be listeners, I think is actually pretty cool. It's pretty helpful in that way to give me a little bit of accountability and be the way I want to be when I'm out there, just having a good time, trying hard, meeting people, being friendly, things like that. And final question here, how do you view your progression in podcasting? And what do you think it will take to get to the next level, whatever that means to you? I think I see my progression in podcasting in slow drips, man. Just Putting out an episode every single week and just learning from each one, reaching a few new people, a few more listeners every single time, connecting with a new guest that I can learn from and who might be excited to share the podcast with their audience. It's just kind of this slow and steady trickle, and it's really fun. I really enjoy showing up to put out an episode every single week. It brings me a lot of purpose and The right amount of structure in my life living on the road and i think the progress and the improvement just come over time you know you almost don't notice it happening when you're doing it i think i'm a much better interviewer now than i was two years ago i'm sure i am but i don't really feel the difference because it's just this slow drip week in week out just learning a few things and refining things and just getting more comfortable mostly that getting more comfortable just through repetition week on week so I don't think there's any big thing, any big strategy or tactic to get to the next level for me. I think I can just kind of envision a deeper level of comfort and ease going into conversations with people who feel intimidating to me right now, asking them real questions, not shying away from questions that feel uncomfortable or that make me nervous to ask. I'm just getting a little bit closer to that one episode at a time. I can always improve. I don't think I'll ever feel like I'm just good, like I'm just arrived and and done. But also what's working is working. I don't feel like I need to do anything crazy to mix things up um, or anything like that. And that's it. That's all of the questions from this Q&A. Thank you guys so much. Thank you guys for listening to the end. Thanks to all the patrons who submitted questions. I really enjoy these. I find these Q&A episodes to be really fun. They're really challenging for me. They give me a lot to think about and I really enjoy that. And I hope you guys get a lot of value out of them as well. And if you're listening, if you wanna support the show and possibly even have your question featured in a future Q&A, consider signing up for Patreon. I've got a few different tiers. You can sign up for as little as 5 bucks a month. It's 10 bucks a month to get your questions featured in Q&As. I have a couple other perks that come with that tier as well. And you can learn about all the ways you can help out at thenuggetclimbing.com. Just go to the website and click on the support the podcast button at the top of the page. And that will take you to all of the things. Don't forget to check out Crimped. Head over to crimpt.com or find the Crimped app in the App Store. The free version gives you access to 75 different workouts created by professional coaches Tom Randall and Ollie Tour of Lattice Training. And it's awesome. That's crimpt.com or download Crimped to check it out for yourself. Be sure to check out Fizzy Vantage. I take their supercharged collagen every day to support my finger training. And I can't recommend it enough. If you are training your fingers and trying to get stronger fingers, head over to fizzyvantage.com. use code nugget 15 at checkout, and you'll save 15% off your order. And that's it, my friends. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate all of you. I hope you all have an amazing week. I'm very tired of talking, so I'm going to shut up now. And thanks again. We'll see you next time. Shake it up, stop when the clock hits 13. Sing 1, 2, 3, 4, (laughs) Cause (laughs) no (laughs) one (laughs) can do it like we do it, like we do it, like we do it. Cause no one can do it like we do it, like we do it, like we do it. Cause no one can do it like we do it, like we do it, like we do it. Cause no one can do it like we do it, like we do it, like we do it.